chapter fifteen of abraham lincoln a history volume nine this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org abraham lincoln a history volume nine by john hay and john george nicolay chapter fifteen cabinet changes the principal concession in the baltimore platform made by the friends of the administration to its opponents was the resolution which called for harmony in the cabinet and although no method was specified by which such harmony could be attained it was no secret that the convention requested and so far as its authority went required that the cabinet should be rendered homogeneous by the dismissal of those members who were stigmatized as conservatives the president at first took no notice either publicly or privately of this resolution and it was with something akin to consternation that the radical body of his supporters heard of the first change which occurred after the convention adjourned the resignation of mr chase whom the extreme radicals regarded as in some sort their special representative in the government took them entirely by surprise the demonstration made by mr wade and mr davis some weeks later increased the feeling of restlessness among them and brought upon the president a powerful pressure from every quarter to induce him to give satisfaction to the radical demand by the dismissal from the cabinet of montgomery blair the postmaster-general who had gradually attracted to himself the hostility of all the radical republicans in the country the unpopularity into which mr blair had fallen among the radicals was one of those incidents that recall the oft-repeated simile that compares political revolutions to saturn devouring his offspring mr blair was one of the founders of the republican party after graduating at west point and serving for a year in the seminole war he resigned his commission in the army and began to practice law in st louis he soon gained high distinction in his profession and became while yet a young man a judge of the court of common pleas he returned to maryland and in eighteen fifty five was appointed solicitor of the united states in the court of claims the repeal of the missouri compromise made a republican of him president buchanan removed him from office in eighteen fifty eight on account of his zealous anti-slavery attitude he was counsel for the plaintiff in the famous dred scott case and presided over the republican convention of maryland in eighteen sixty with the exception of his brother frank in missouri and cassius simclay in kentucky he was the most prominent opponent of the extension of slavery in all the southern states the immediate cause which occasioned his loss of caste among the radical anti-slavery men was the quarrel which sprung up between his family and general fremont in missouri in this also he had the mortification of feeling that he had nursed the pinion that impelled the steel the reputation of general fremont was the creation of the blairs it was at their solicitation that the president appointed the pathfinder a major-general in the regular army and gave him command of the important department of missouri so late as the twenty fourth of august eighteen sixty one general fremont relied upon montgomery blair for all the support and assistance he required in washington 
the postmaster general writing to him on that date spoke of the president and his colleagues with the indiscreet frankness of confidential friendship chase he said has more horror of seeing treasury notes below par than of seeing soldiers killed and therefore has held back too much i think i don't believe at all in that style of managing the treasury he goes on lamenting his lack of influence in the government in a style which reminds us of mr chase himself this i can see he says is partly my own fault i have been too obstreperous perhaps in my opposition and men do not like those who have exposed their mistakes beforehand and taught them with them afterwards the main difficulty is however with lincoln himself he is of the whig school and that brings him naturally not only to incline to the feeble policy of whigs but to give his confidence to such advisers it costs me a great deal of labor to get anything done because of the inclination of mind on the part of the president or leading members of the cabinet including chase who never voted a democratic ticket in his life but you have the people at your back and i am doing all i can to cut red tape and get things done i will be more civil and patient than heretofore and see if that won't work no man can be sufficiently sure of friends to write them such letters as this a few months later fremont was blair's deadliest enemy and these letters being printed came up like impertinent ghosts between the postmaster-general and his colleagues at the cabinet table in the beginning of this quarrel the blairs were unquestionably right but being unjustly assailed by the radicals the natural pugnacity of their dispositions would not permit them to rest firmly planted on their own ground they entered upon a course of hostility that was at first confined to their factious enemies but which gradually broadened and extended till it landed them both in the democratic party montgomery blair was doubtless unconscious of his progress in that direction he thought himself the most zealous of republicans until the moment that he declared himself the most zealous of democrats every admonition he received but increased the heat and energy with which he defended himself the union league of philadelphia towards the close of eighteen sixty three left out his name in the resolutions by which they elected all the rest of the cabinet honorary members of the league he chose to consider henry winter davis responsible for some attacks made upon him and desired to defeat him in maryland the president who had certainly no cause to show personal favor to mr davis said that as he was the choice of the union men of maryland he merited and should receive what friendly support the administration could give mr blair made a speech in rockville touching upon the subject of reconstruction and indulged in vigorous and somewhat acrid allusions to some of his leading republican assailants this brought upon him and upon mr lincoln over his shoulders much vehement criticism it was in relation to this speech that the president said the controversy between the two sets of men represented by blair and by sumner is one of mere form and little else i do not think mr blair would agree that the states in rebellion are to be permitted to come at once into the political family and renew their performances which have already so bedeviled us and i do not think mr sumner would insist that when the loyal people of a state obtain supremacy in their councils and are ready to assume the direction of their own affairs they should be excluded 
i do not understand mr blair to admit that jefferson davis may take his seat in congress again as a representative of his people i do not understand mr sumner to assert that john minor botts may not so far as i understand mr sumner he seems in favor of congress taking from the executive the power it at present exercises over insurrectionary districts and assuming it to itself but when the vital question arises as to the right and privilege of the people of these states to govern themselves i apprehend there will be little difference among loyal men the question at once is presented in whom is this power vested and the practical matter for discussion is how to keep the rebellious population from overwhelming and outvoting the loyal minority it was a year before this that the president wrote the letter of kindly and sensible advice to general frank p blair jr which we have given in another place a letter which when published many months afterwards gave great and lasting offence to the enemies of blair in congress and in the country although general blair at this time retired from the contest for the speakership the postmaster-general continued with equally bad taste and judgment to oppose the nomination of schuyler colfax for that place upon colfax going to him in person and demanding the motive of his hostility mr blair was so indiscreet as to give as a reason for his opposition that colfax was running as a chase candidate the opposition to blair was not confined to the radical demonstrations in the baltimore convention and out of it some of the most judicious republicans in the country who were not personally unfriendly to blair urged upon the president the necessity of freeing himself from such a source of weakness and discord even in the bosom of the government itself a strong hostility to mr blair made itself felt while mr chase remained in the cabinet there was always a condition of smouldering hostility between the two men mr blair's enmity to mr seward also became more and more violent in its expression and his relations with mr stanton were subject to a strain which was hardly endurable there was still however so much in his character and antecedents that was estimable the president had so deep a regard for both the blairs and especially for their father that he had great reluctance to take any action against the postmaster-general in the middle of july after the termination of early's raid upon washington general halleck exasperated by the report of stringent and sarcastic remarks which mr blair under the provocation of the destruction by rebels of his property in the suburbs of washington had made in reference to the laxity or poltroonery of the defenders of the capital addressed an angry note to the secretary of war saying that he wished to know whether such wholesale denouncement and accusation by a member of the cabinet receives the sanction and approbation of the president of the united states if so general halleck continued the names of the officers accused should be stricken from the rolls of the army if not it is due to the honor of the accused that the slanderer should be dismissed from the cabinet mr stanton sent this letter of halleck's to the president without comment the president on the same day replied in his most masterful manner after summarizing halleck's letter he said whether the remarks were really made i do not know nor do i suppose such knowledge is necessary to a correct response if they were made i do not approve them and yet under the circumstances i would not dismiss a member of the cabinet therefore 
i do not consider what may have been hastily said in a moment of vexation at so severe a loss is sufficient ground for so grave a step besides this truth is generally the best vindication against slander i propose continuing to be myself the judge as to when a member of the cabinet shall be dismissed not satisfied with this the president when the cabinet came together read them this impressive and oracular little lecture i must myself be the judge how long to retain in and when to remove any of you from his position it would greatly pain me to discover any of you endeavouring to procure another's removal or in any way to prejudice him before the public such endeavour would be a wrong to me and much worse a wrong to the country my wish is that on this subject no remark be made nor question asked by any of you here or elsewhere now or hereafter this we are inclined to think is one of the most remarkable speeches ever made by a president the tone of authority is unmistakable washington was never more dignified jackson was never more peremptory the feeling against mr blair and the pressure upon the president to remove him increased throughout the summer henry wilson wrote on the fifth of september blair every one hates tens of thousands of men will be lost to you or will give a reluctant vote on account of the blairs the president's mail was filled with such appeals as this but through the gloom and discouragement of midsummer he declined to act there was a moment as we have seen when he lost heart in the campaign and believed that the verdict of the country would be against him yet even then he refused to make the concession to the radical spirit which he was assured from every quarter would result so greatly to his advantage but with the victories which came later in the season and with the response of the country to the pusillanimous surrender of the chicago convention there came a great and inspiring change of public opinion and before the month of september ended the assured triumph of the union cause became evident to one so capable as was mr lincoln to discern and appreciate the signs of the times he felt that it was his duty no longer to retain in his cabinet a member who whatever his personal merits had lost the confidence of the great body of republicans he had learned also during the long controversy more than he had ever known before of the violent and unruly candor of the postmaster-general exasperated by the attacks made upon him there were no limits to mr blair's jealousy and suspicion he wearied the president by insisting upon it that all the leading republicans were lincoln's enemies after chase left the cabinet he insisted that seward and stanton were in league against lincoln that stanton went into the cabinet to break down the administration by thwarting mcclellan and that seward was coquetting with the copperheads mr lincoln listened to these denunciations with growing fatigue and impatience he protested against them he said once to mr blair in the presence of another it is much better not to be led from the region of reason into that of hot blood by imputing to public men motives which they do not avow towards the end of september the president reasonably sure of his re-election and feeling that he ought not any longer to delay complying with the demand of a party which was giving him so earnest and loyal a support wrote this letter to the postmaster-general you have generously said to me more than once that whenever your resignation could be a relief to me it was at my disposal the time has come you very well know that this proceeds from no dissatisfaction of mine with you personally or officially 
your uniform kindness has been unsurpassed by that of any friend and while it is true that the war does not so greatly add to the difficulties of your department as to those of some others it is yet much to say as i most truly can that in the three years and a half during which you have administered the general post office i remember no single complaint against you in connection therewith mr blair accepted his dismissal in a manner which was to have been expected from his manly and generous character he called upon the president at once not pretending to be pleased at what had happened but assuming that the president had good reasons for his action and refraining from any demand for explanation he went immediately to maryland and busied himself in speaking and working for the union cause and for the re-election of mr lincoln he made a speech a few days later in new york at a great war meeting in which he said that the action of the president in asking his resignation was suggested by his own father all the family received this serious reverse in the temper of fighting men ready for all the chances of battle and of bold players whose traditional rule of conduct when the cards go against them is pay and look pleasant general blair wrote to his father that he was sure in advance that his brother had acted for the good of the country and in the interest of the re-election of mr lincoln in which he says the safety of the country is involved i believe he continued that the failure to elect mr lincoln would be the greatest disaster that could befall the country and the sacrifice made by the judge to avert this is so incomparably small that i felt it would not cost him a pang to make the judge leaves the cabinet with an untarnished name and the reputation of having administered the department with the greatest ability and success and that as far as worldly considerations go it is far better for him to go out than to remain in the cabinet as to the future i have no fear if lincoln's election is secured no matter what his personal disposition may be towards us or what his political necessities may compel him to do if the country is saved and restored those who have served the country in its trials will some day be rewarded for the patriotism they have shown by the verdict of a higher power than that of the president after the death of judge taney mr blair for a while indulged the hope that he might be appointed chief justice a position for which his natural abilities his legal learning his former judicial service and his large acquaintance with the more important matters which would come before the court eminently fitted him but the competition of mr chase was too strong for any rival however worthy and he was chosen to the bitter disappointment of the blairs even this did not shake their steadfast loyalty to the union cause nor their personal fidelity and friendship to the president immediately after his second inauguration mr lincoln offered montgomery blair his choice of the spanish or the austrian mission an offer which was peremptorily though respectfully declined mr blair's successor in the cabinet ex-governor william dennison of ohio had been selected beforehand the president informed him of his appointment in a brief telegram and directed him to proceed to washington as soon as possible mr dennison had rendered admirable service to the government as governor of ohio at the outbreak of the war he was a gentleman of the highest character of great ability and perfect integrity and of peculiarly winning and gracious manners we find among the president's papers a letter written by his intimate friend david davis on the second of june suggesting governor dennison as a proper person to preside over the baltimore convention judge davis wrote he is a pure upright man one of your most devoted friends if during this or your subsequent administration you think it your duty to modify your cabinet in my judgment you could not get a wiser counsellor than governor dennison 
this so far as we know was the first perhaps the only suggestion made to the president in favor of mr dennison for a place in the cabinet the claim of localities always had a disproportionate weight in his mind when mr chase resigned mr lincoln appointed governor todd in his place and after todd had declined he was glad to find an opportunity to call another ohio statesman into his cabinet the reconstruction of the cabinet went on by gradual disintegration rather than by any brusque or even voluntary action of the president mr bates the attorney-general before the end of the year eighteen sixty four grew weary not only of the labors of his official position but also of the rapid progress of the revolution of which he had been one of the earliest advocates before the war he was the most eminent of all those whig lawyers in the south who while standing by all the guarantees of the constitution still opposed the aggressions of the slave power after the rebellion began he did not shift his ground in any essential respect when asked by the secretary of the treasury whether colored men could be citizens of the united states and therefore competent to discharge functions reserved exclusively for citizens he not only answered in the affirmative but accompanied his answer with an elaborate opinion full of learning and legal acumen in which he relied exclusively upon the law in the case without regard to any question of morals or of sentiment involved although heartily devoted to the cause of freedom and emancipation he was wedded by constitutional temperament and lifelong habit to the strictest rules of law and precedent every deviation from tradition pained him inexpressibly the natural and unavoidable triumph of the radical party in st louis politics and to a certain extent in those of the nation seemed to him the herald of the trump of doom he grew weary of it all and expressed to the president his desire for retirement if he had not himself wished to resign the president would probably not have suggested it mr lincoln was greatly displeased at an announcement made by simon cameron as if upon his authority that in the event of re-election he would call around him fresh and earnest anti-slavery men on hearing of this indiscreet and injurious statement he said they need not be so savage about a change in the government there are now only three left of the original cabinet he put a vacant judgeship at the disposition of the attorney-general but mr bates declined it not without some petulant remarks about the uselessness of a legal system in a state dominated by the revolutionary spirit which then ruled in missouri he said he could not work in harmony with the radicals whom he regarded as enemies of law and order there was no such thing as a patriotic and honest american radical some of the transcendental republican germans were honest enough in their moonstruck theorizing but the americans impudently and dishonestly arrogated to themselves the title of unconditional loyalty when the whole spirit of their faction was contempt of and opposition to the law while the present state of things continues in missouri there is no need of a court so says judge treat and i agree with him considering the subject of a successor to mr bates the president his mind still hampered by the consideration of locality weighed for several days the names of all the leading men of missouri who were in any way fitted for the place but found good reasons for rejecting them all one of his secretaries said to him why confine yourself to missouri why not go to the adjoining state and take judge holt the president looked up with some surprise and said why that would be an excellent appointment i question if i could do better i had always intended though i had never mentioned it to any one that if a vacancy should occur on the supreme bench in any southern district i would appoint him but giving him a place in the cabinet would not hinder that mr bates tendered his resignation at last on the twenty fourth of november 
heretofore he said it has not been compatible with my ideas of duty to the public and fidelity to you to leave my post of service for any private considerations however urgent then the fate of the nation hung in doubt and gloom even your own fate as identified with that of the nation was a source of much anxiety now on the contrary the affairs of the government display a brighter aspect and to you as head and leader of the government all the honour and good fortune that we hoped for has come and it seems to me under these altered circumstances that the time has come when i may without dereliction of duty ask leave to retire to private life in tendering the resignation of my office of attorney-general of the united states which i now do i gladly seize the occasion to repeat the expression of my gratitude not only for your good opinion which led to my appointment but also for your uniform and unvarying courtesy and kindness during the whole time in which we have been associated in the public service the memory of that kindness and personal favour i shall bear with me into private life and hope to retain it in my heart as long as i live pray let my resignation take effect on the last day of november a few days before the end of november the president offered the place of attorney-general to joseph holt but mr holt with that modesty and conscientiousness which formed the most striking trait of his noble character believed that the length of time which had elapsed since he had retired from active service at the bar had rendered him unfit for the preparation and presentation of cases in an adequate manner before the supreme court and therefore declined the appointment the president was not at first inclined to accept this as a sufficient reason for declination but on the thirtieth of november mr holt wrote a letter formally reiterating his refusal to accept the appointment after the most careful reflection he said i have not been able to overcome the embarrassments referred to in our last interview and which then disinclined me to accept as they must now determine me respectfully to decline the appointment tendered in terms at once so generous and so full of encouragement in view of all the circumstances i am satisfied that i can serve you better in the position which i now hold at your hands than in the more elevated one to which i have been invited i have reached this conclusion with extreme reluctance and regret but having reached it and with decided convictions no other course is open to me than that which has been taken i beg you to be assured that i am and shall ever be most grateful for this distinguished token of your confidence and goodwill in it i cannot fail to find renewed incentives to the faithful and zealous performance of the public duties with which you have already charged me failing to secure mr holt the mind of the president turned to another kentuckian james speed an able and accomplished lawyer a man of high professional and social standing in his state and the brother of the most intimate friend of the president's youth joshua f speed mr holt warmly recommended mr speed he said i can recall no public man in the state of uncompromising loyalty who unites in the same degree the qualifications of professional attainments fervent devotion to the union and to the principles of your administration and spotless purity of personal character to these he adds what i should deem indispensable a warm and hearty friendship for yourself personally and officially soon after the opening of the new year mr fessenden was again elected to the senate from maine and resigned his office as secretary of the treasury in his letter of resignation he said i carry with me great and increased respect for your personal character and for the ability which has marked your administration of the government at a period requiring the most devoted patriotism and the highest intellectual and moral qualities for a place so exalted as yours 
allow me also to congratulate you upon the greatly improved aspect of our national affairs to which and to the auspicious result of our prolonged struggle for national life now as i sincerely believe so near at hand no one can claim to have so largely contributed as the chosen chief magistrate of this great people the place thus vacated instantly excited a wide and spirited competition of recommendations the principal bankers of chicago joined in recommending hugh mcculloch of indiana who had made a favorable official record as comptroller of the currency in the supervision of the national banks governor morgan was strongly presented by nearly the entire state of new york though a few of the so-called radicals of that state joined with the great mass of the people of new england in recommending governor andrew whose splendid executive qualities no less than his fiery zeal and patriotism had endeared him to the earnest anti-slavery people throughout the country both branches of the main legislature recommended vice-president hamlin to take the place vacated by his distinguished colleague jay cook who was carrying on with such remarkable success at that time the great funding operations of the treasury department reinforced with his recommendation the demand of the western politicians and bankers for mr mcculloch montgomery blair who still retained his friendly and confidential relations with the president wrote to him on the twenty second of february saying that mr hamlin did not wish his claim to be appointed secretary of the treasury urged upon the president that mr morgan positively refused the appointment he supplemented these two important bits of information with the characteristic and irrelevant suggestion that mr seward should leave the cabinet that sumner should take his place and that governor andrew might then succeed sumner in the senate he also added that it would be a good thing to encourage garibaldi to drive the french from mexico the president concluded to nominate governor morgan who declined the honor mr mcculloch was then appointed upon which mr usher on the eighth of march desiring as he said to relieve the president from any possible embarrassment which might arise from the fact that two members of the cabinet were from the same state resigned his place as secretary of the interior the president endorsed the resignation accepted to take effect may fifteenth eighteen sixty five before that date should arrive tremendous changes were to take place in the government of the united states End of chapter fifteen